Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Relisha Rudd. Relisha was only eight years old when she went missing from Washington, D.C. in 2014. Unfortunately, by the time that she was reported missing, her family hadn't seen her in 18 days. It wasn't until her school began to investigate her absences that they discovered that she was having an inappropriate relationship with an adult male. Relisha has never been found. This story was brought to my attention by several of my followers on TikTok. They told me that I absolutely had to cover this case. And after reading about it, I knew they were right. Her story breaks my heart. She was let down by almost every single adult in her life that should have been taking care of her. As you can imagine, that really hits close to home for me. But I want to be there for Relisha now, in the only way that I know how, which is by raising awareness for her. Before we jump in, I also have to give a major shout out to the Washington Post who covered Relisha's story extensively. I have over four pages of resources for this episode, and a ton of them come from the Washington Post, so I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. But without further introduction, this is the story of Relisha Rudd. Relisha was born on October 29, 2005 in Washington, D.C., She was born to her parents, Shamika Young and Irving Rudd. I want to take a moment and give you some background on Relisha's parents. Her mother, Shamika, spent a lot of time in homeless shelters growing up, and she entered the foster care system at the age of six. Shamika's mother, Melissa, would come in and out of her life throughout the years, but ultimately, she would age out of the system when she turned 18. About a year later, Relisha was born. I wasn't able to find a ton about how Relisha's father grew up. However, I was able to find that he was convicted of involuntary manslaughter of his 17-month-old daughter in 1992. Apparently, she'd been beaten and thrown against a table. She later died from her injuries. After Relisha was born, Shamika and Irving moved into an apartment complex in a pretty seedy neighborhood in Edgewood. Here, they would have another child together, a boy. In July of 2007, when Relisha was only one, the first report from Child and Family Services came in. Relisha had some very apparent injuries on her body. They also reported that there was inadequate food and supervision for Relisha and her newborn baby brother. The police were contacted, but it was determined that no assault could be confirmed and no children were removed from the home. That same year, Shamika and Irving moved out of the apartment complex after someone started shooting and injured seven people in total. Eventually, Relisha's parents end their relationship together, and Shamika would meet Relisha's future stepfather, Antonio Wheeler. They would go on to have two more boys together, giving Relisha a total of three younger brothers. Unfortunately, the alleged abuse and neglect didn't stop with Relisha's biological father being out of the picture. In April of 2010, there was another report made to Child and Family Services. In the report, it was alleged that one of Relisha's younger brothers was not getting the required medical attention he needed after a surgery. The report also mentioned that the family was living in, quote, environmentally unsafe conditions. 
it noted that there was debris and cigarette butts all over the apartment and that the children were bathing themselves without supervision. Again, none of the children were removed from their care. The family bounced between many different apartments during this time, often getting evicted. In the end, at least five of Shamika's former landlords would try to take legal action against her for breaking tenant contracts. Eventually, the family would end up at a motel for about three months before going to the D.C. General Shelter in 2012. Before I tell you more about Relisha, I want to explain what type of place this shelter was. First, the D.C. General Shelter was never supposed to permanently house anyone. The building was originally the D.C. General Hospital. After it shut down, they converted it into a temporary shelter to deal with the ever-growing issue of homeless families in the area. The shelter basically provided housing as well as other assistance to families it served. It wasn't a place where you just randomly checked in for the night and then left. These families were under the care of the shelter. They participated in programs to help them get back on their feet, and they had to be there every night. The shelter was funded by the city. They paid the nonprofit organization, the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, or TCP for short, $13 million each year to run this makeshift shelter. So ultimately, all liability for this shelter lays in the hands of TCP. If you guys don't know, I used to work in nonprofit, so I was super curious about what was going on with this funding. I used a website called charitynavigator.org to find more information. Basically, this website rates nonprofits based on how much funding actually goes to programming, how transparent they are with reporting, and a ton of other factors. To be fair, TCP has an incredibly high rating on there right now with a perfect score of 100. But again, I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper. I was able to find that in 2013, the year before Relisha went missing, the charity made almost $100 million in total. That same year, their executive director was paid close to $200,000, and the deputy director and CFO each made about $100,000. Honestly, this isn't that crazy for nonprofits. I've seen much higher salaries in organizations that pull in a lot less than $100 million a year. Of this close to $100 million that TCP made in 2013, about $2.5 million was left unspent. That is still an incredibly high percentage of their funding that goes directly towards programming. After all, most nonprofits strive to pad their savings a bit so that they have funding for programs should donations, grants, etc. decrease. These financials were not super shocking to me, but I think it puts things into context a little bit more, especially when you hear about the conditions of the shelter. On the 2013 financial statement I found, they list out a few shelters that they provided funding to, but the D.C. General Shelter wasn't on that list. So I'm assuming that this whole deal with the city is considered to be a separate contracted job. All of this to say that it looks like the charity most likely used only the $13 million given to them by the city and nothing more to fund the shelter. This relationship between TCP, the city, and the D.C. General Shelter looks and feels like, to me, just a contractual agreement as opposed to an actual charitable endeavor. I also have to say, I'm not a lawyer. I haven't seen this contract. It's entirely possible that TCP was perhaps unable to allocate any more funds. I also acknowledge that it is extremely expensive to house families in a shelter and to provide them these resources. I tried to look up a definitive cost to house a family per year, but it was kind of all over the place. 
So I have to admit that it's entirely possible that the $13 million a year just wasn't enough to cover the needs of the about 800 people being housed there. But I also have to state that the conditions of this shelter were absolutely unacceptable. And ultimately, no one wanted to take responsibility for it, which is why I wanted to dig deeper into this relationship. Because lack of accountability will be a tragic theme that I believe led directly to Relisha's disappearance. The D.C. General Shelter was in this area where if you go one way, you have Lincoln Park and you have the Capitol, and if you go the other way, you'll find a methadone clinic, a morgue, and just run-down neighborhoods. The land itself is actually extremely valuable. But again, the conditions inside were nothing short of horrific. The building was absolutely infested with bugs and pests. There were bed bugs, mice, raccoons, and more. Close to 30 people were hospitalized just for bites. Not just treated, but actually hospitalized. Now, I've seen counter-arguments to this, saying that there's just a lot of people coming and going, and that it's entirely possible that the residents are bringing these things with them at just a super high rate that is difficult for the shelter to handle. Again, I'm not an expert. Like I said, I don't know everything about this shelter, but I do have some personal experience in this area. I used to work for an organization that cared for hundreds of children in the foster care system here in Arizona. Part of my job was to read each and every incident report in the organization. These reports included everything from a child cursing to being abused to there being pest problems in the houses. Much like the D.C. General Shelter, these kids would come in and out of the foster care system on a daily basis. There were absolutely incidents involving pests. There were bedbugs, lice, and more. I understand that it just happens when you have so many people coming in and out, just like a hospital or hotel. But in my about two years with this organization, reading these reports every single day, I never saw a child or adult staff member be hospitalized due to a bite. So when I read that there were over 30 people hospitalized because of these bites at the D.C. General Shelter, I was pretty shocked. One couple reported that they had to sleep in shifts to ensure that cockroaches stayed off of their five-month-old baby. Multiple residents reported that the entire facility smelled like feces, and that there were trash and dirty diapers everywhere, inside and out. There were also several reports of sexual assault, shelter workers taking photos while residents were showering, money being exchanged between employees and residents for sex, tax scams, and even a child being taken and recovered a year later in LA as a possible victim of sex trafficking. So, as you can imagine, 8-year-old Relisha Rudd didn't enjoy living in this facility. She would often call it the G or the Trap House. It got to the point where she was known to ask her school's security guard, Regina Pixley, if she could just stay at the school a little bit longer instead of going home to the shelter. She even faked asthma attacks so she could stay with her aunt Ashley Young instead of going to the shelter. It is extremely apparent that Relisha would have done anything to stay away, even if that meant being without her mother, stepfather, and brothers. Let's talk about Relisha. Despite her rough situation, she was by all accounts a good kid. She loved singing and dancing and still slept with her teddy bear named Baby. And like a lot of kids, she enjoyed dressing up as a princess for Halloween. 
Although her family moved a lot, she did attend Farabee Hope Elementary School from pre-K until first grade in 2013. Relisha was also very interested in after-school activities. She was in Girl Scouts, to which her grandmother Melissa would state that she ate more cookies than she sold, but she enjoyed it. Relisha was also in cheerleading, which is where she would receive the most support. Her cheerleading coach, Shannon Smith, remembers when she first met Relisha. She walked right up to her and asked to be on the team, and she started showing her how she'd been practicing spelling victory with her arms. Shannon Smith was very impressed that at the time, a first grader was able to spell such a big word. Relisha was immediately accepted to the team. This is when Shannon Smith became very close with her. She noticed that she would often come to school with dirty clothes, dirty hair, and an empty stomach. Eventually, it became pretty routine for her to take Relisha to the restroom to clean her up before class, and to keep clean clothes on hand for her to wear at school. Shannon Smith also recalled some other incidents that disturbed her. There were several days where she noticed that Relisha and one of her younger brothers were among the last to be picked up by their parents. She also recalled a specific incident in which she was late returning from a field trip she'd chaperoned, only to find Relisha and her brother still at the school waiting to be picked up. So Shannon calls their mother and offers to give them a ride home. But Shamika refused to give the address of where they were staying, and she hung up on Shannon. Shamika then called the school directly and asked them to tell Relisha and her brother to walk home. Shannon Smith would tell the Washington Post, quote, All that girl wanted was to be hugged, end quote. Unfortunately, Farabee Hope Elementary School closed in June of 2013, so in the fall, Relisha would attend Payne Elementary School and essentially lose that support from Shannon Smith. Where Relisha lived and went to school wasn't in the best area. About half the kids lived in poverty, half the families couldn't afford a vehicle, and over 42,000 people were receiving government assistance. In addition to this, the unemployment rate was also almost 10% higher in this area than the rest of the state. Relisha was just one of 55 homeless children at her school, and one of about 600 children at the D.C. General Shelter. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This brings us... This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. 
I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials. And with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice to early 2014. Relisha is now eight years old and in the second grade at her new school. She's still living at the shelter with her mother, stepfather, and three younger brothers. And she's doing absolutely everything she can to get away from the shelter. She was kind of passed around between her family a bit. She even had a cat named Missy at her grandmother's house. But ultimately, no one was able to care for Relisha full-time. This is when Relisha starts spending a lot of time with a 51-year-old man named Khalil Tatum. Let's talk about this man for a minute. He was a convicted felon charged with breaking and entering, larceny, and burglary. He was in prison from 1993 to 2003, and again from 2004 to 2011. Eventually, he would marry a woman named Andrea, and he lived with her in an apartment across from the Canalworth Park and Aquatic Gardens in D.C., According to Andrea's daughter from another relationship, in 2014, Andrea and Khalil were having domestic issues, and Andrea was considering leaving him. All of these things will be important to keep in mind as we get deeper into Relisha's story. What's important to remember right now is that Khalil Tatum was also a janitor at the D.C. General Shelter. Shamika Young reports meeting Khalil in 2005. This would be while he was serving his second prison sentence. However, Relisha's aunt and grandmother wouldn't meet him or be aware of his existence even until Relisha's family moved into the shelter. But by 2014, Shamika told her family that Khalil Tatum was Relisha's godfather. You see, Khalil Tatum was apparently doing a lot for Relisha at the shelter. Despite the rules set by TCP that shelter employees were not supposed to have personal relationships with residents, we know this rule was being broken left and right. Khalil Tatum was certainly no exception. He was known to break this rule with lots of young girls, often giving them extra attention and gifts like $20 bills. But it appears that he took a very special interest in Relisha. He would take her out shopping for new clothes and take her to get her nails done. He also gave her a brand new tablet for Christmas. Shamika Young would tell one news station, quote, I didn't see anything wrong with him. He's a good guy. When Relisha did go out with him, he brought her back. He would take her shopping, he took her to Disney on Ice, he bought her a tablet for Christmas, took her out to eat with his granddaughter, end quote. Relisha's Aunt Ashley recalls that one day she was watching Relisha when she got a call from Tatum. She had no idea who this guy was, but he said he was coming to pick Relisha up. Ashley is like, wait a second, who are you? How'd you get my number? Like, what is going on? Khalil Tatum says, I'm Relisha's godfather. Her mother says I can pick her up. I'm on my way. Ashley was obviously super confused and concerned, but Shamika assured her that it was fine, so she went with it. 
Pretty soon, Khalil Tatum was known to Relisha's entire family. It became normal that he spent a lot of time with her. Relisha's grandmother, Melissa, said that she did have reservations at first, but eventually, she also saw this as normal. Relisha spent a lot of time with him, but she would come back talking about how much fun she had with his granddaughter, so the family assumed it was fine. But these days with Tatum and his granddaughter would turn into sleepovers, and weekends, and as we will learn, eventually even trips out of state. Now, this next part of the timeline is a little hard to follow, and there are definitely some things missing, so stay with me here. It was around this time, early 2014, that Relisha began missing a lot of school. Most of the days she missed were excused by her mother. She told the school that Relisha was being treated for a neurological issue, and she was producing doctor's notes, so the school didn't think much of it. But not all of the absences were excused. On February 25th, Relisha hits her fifth unexcused absence. At this point, the school schedules a parent-teacher conference with Shamika for March 5th. On February 26th, at about 7.30 p.m., Relisha is seen on surveillance video with Khalil Tatum at a Holiday Inn Express. This video shows them walking down the hallway, each holding bags, before eventually going into one of the guest rooms using a key. Tatum's bag looks more like a reusable shopping bag, while Relisha's bags look more like grocery bags. But their contents are unknown. Shamika would later state that she thought Relisha was going to a pool party for Tatum's granddaughter. But this Holiday Inn Express didn't even have a pool. So why Relisha was here possibly, most likely, alone with Tatum is obviously terrifying. It's difficult to know exactly what happened on March 1st, 2014. Because we have some conflicting stories. Relisha's aunt Ashley stated that she saw Relisha and her three brothers that morning. She even remembers doing Relisha's hair in pink and white bows. Relisha wasn't feeling well and stayed home from school. From here, she says Relisha is picked up by her mother, Shamika. Before Shamika and Relisha leave Ashley's house, they record a video that would be posted to Shamika's Instagram. Ashley says this is the last time she saw Relisha. Shamika states that she did pick Relisha up, but quickly dropped her off with her grandmother, Melissa. Shamika says that this is the last time she saw Relisha. From here, Relisha somehow makes it back to Khalil Tatum. To this day, no one has stepped forward to say that they were the person that allowed Relisha to go with Tatum. Shamika blames Melissa, and Melissa blames Shamika. But we do know that Relisha was with Khalil Tatum on March 1st. The pair was captured on surveillance at a Days Inn on New York Avenue. They are seen walking past a fountain in front of the hotel, then through the lobby, and eventually walking into a guest room. This is the last confirmed sighting of Relisha Rudd. The next day, Khalil Tatum is seen buying a pack of 42-gallon contractor-sized trash bags. He also buys a shovel and lime. The same day, he's seen at the Canalworth Park and Aquatic Gardens, which, as you might remember, was the park near his apartment. Around this same time, Relisha's stepfather Antonio Wheeler posts pictures to Facebook displaying a stack of $50 bills and new Air Jordan sneakers. On March 5th, Shamika Young meets with the officials at Relisha's school to discuss her unexcused absences, and at this time, they offer additional services to help get Relisha to school. Shamika again reiterates that Relisha was under the care of a doctor for a neurological disorder and has produced several doctor's notes. An interesting note here is that both on March 5th and on March 7th, the school would report sightings of Relisha. 
but after further investigation, the police couldn't confirm the sightings, and they maintain that March 1st was the last confirmed sighting of Relisha. I know all of this is a little confusing, so I want to remind you that while Shamika is attending this parent-teacher conference on March 5th, she hasn't seen or spoken to her daughter in four days. All of this time, Relisha is still away from her family and racking up these unexcused absences. Finally, on March 10th, school officials call this doctor that was treating Relisha and tell him, you need to provide more documentation to excuse these absences. So the doctor is like, no problem, I will absolutely get that to you. And he tells them that Relisha will be discharged from his care by the end of the next week. On March 12th, Relisha's grandmother, Melissa, calls Khalil Tatum to ask him if he can fix the tablet he bought Relisha for Christmas. She also asks him if he had Relisha. Melissa told CBS News in Baltimore, quote, I said, Mr. Tatum, have you talked to Relisha or do you have Relisha? His answer to me was no, he don't have her. Then he said, do you know where I am? And I'm like, you should be home getting ready to go out of town on your trip. He was going to Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, you're right, but I'm already in Atlanta, Georgia, he said. We're already in Atlanta, Georgia. And I said, who? You, your wife, your daughter, and your granddaughter? Then he says to me, no. Me, my wife, Relisha, my granddaughter, and my daughter. He went on some type of retreat, but he told Micah it was at some medical retreat or family retreat or something. End quote. Melissa also says that before she hung up this call with Tatum, she asked him to have Relisha back by the 16th for a birthday party. But this still doesn't sit right with Melissa, and she calls Shamika, stating, quote, I said, Shamika, did you know that your daughter was out of town with Mr. Tatum and his family? She said, when he asked me could she go, I said no, don't take her, end quote. Although Melissa and Shamika apparently now know that Khalil Tatum has taken Relisha out of state without their knowledge and against Shamika's wishes, neither of them call police. On March 13th, Relisha hits 10 unexcused absences. At this point, the school is legally required to report this to Child and Family Services as neglect, but it will take them a few days to respond. On March 16th, Cleo Tatum fails to return Relisha home in time for the birthday party as requested by her grandmother. There is still no action taken at this point. On March 17th, Melissa calls Tatum, who says that he's back in town and dropped Relisha off at school that morning. However, as we all know, Relisha didn't make it to school. Again, no action is taken for Relisha. Finally, on March 19th, 2014, Child and Family Services contacts Relisha's doctor at the shelter, and they set up a meeting for the same day. A social worker from Relisha's school accompanies the agent to the shelter because at this point, Relisha has missed over 30 days of school. When they get to the shelter, they go to the front desk and explain that they have a meeting with a Dr. Tatum. After a lot of confusion, an employee at the shelter explains that there is no Dr. Tatum at the shelter, only a Khalil Tatum who worked as a janitor. On top of all of that, it appeared that Khalil Tatum abruptly left his shift early that day and could not be reached. At this point, they call the police to speak with Relisha's mother and stepfather to help explain what in the world was going on. Shamika's story keeps changing, but she admits that she hasn't seen or heard from her daughter in 18 days. She says that this is because she didn't have access to a phone. 
She also insists that Relisha is perfectly fine with Khalil Tatum, and she refuses to file a police report. Antonio Wheeler would later tell the Steve Wilco show that he spoke with Khalil Tatum and told him the police were looking for him, and he claims that Tatum told him that he would bring Relisha back. At 9.39 p.m., the police call Khalil Tatum, but it goes right to voicemail. They would later discover that Tatum's phone was powered down on that day and never used again. At this point, they do begin looking for Relisha, but no Amber Alert is issued. Let's jump to what Khalil Tatum was doing on this night. Around 10 p.m., Khalil, his wife Andrea, and three other people check into a local Red Roof Inn. All five of these people were captured on surveillance near room 132. And at 10.13 p.m., a keycard was swiped to open the door. About an hour later, surveillance captures these three unknown people leaving the Red Roof Inn in a vehicle. This leaves Khalil and Andrea Tatum alone in the hotel. At 5.40 a.m. the next morning, one of these three other people come back to the hotel to pick up Khalil Tatum. This person goes up to the room, knocks on the door, but says that Tatum wouldn't let him back in the room. However, this person does note that they briefly saw his wife Andrea laying on the bed when he opened the door. From here, this person drops Tatum off at the Southern Avenue Metro Station in Suitland, Maryland. I do want to note here that these three other people were identified and questioned by police, but they've never been named publicly, which is why I'm just calling them these three other people. At approximately 8 a.m., officers respond to a call at the Red Roof Inn to check out a vehicle possibly related to Relisha's case. After speaking with the front desk, they discover that Tatum was still checked into room 132. They knock on the door, but there's no answer. So they go back down to the front desk and return with a master key. When they open the door, they see Andrea Tatum deceased on the bed. There were no signs of a struggle, no cuts, and no bruises. Just a single gunshot to her head. An arrest warrant is issued for Khalil Tatum for killing his wife, and a be on the lookout was issued for Relisha. This would eventually turn into an Amber Alert. There was actually a lot of back and forth between the Metro Police and the surrounding agencies about this. Metro Police, to this day, still insist that they issued an Amber Alert immediately. They even say that this was despite Relisha not meeting the criteria, which is simply not true. Police in New York and North Carolina state that the Amber Alert system was absolutely not activated because they would have been notified. Ultimately, an Amber Alert coordinator that worked for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children named Robert Hoover steps in to say, quote, To the best of my knowledge, there are no Amber Alerts active outside of D.C. I believe there might be a misunderstanding about what an Amber Alert is. End quote. In the end, an Amber Alert is activated for Relisha later that day. Unfortunately, we are now at 19 days since the last confirmed sighting of Relisha. Over the next few days, they gather the surveillance videos that I mentioned earlier in this episode, and they continue looking for Relisha in the areas surrounding the shelter and motels Tatum was last seen in. This really isn't one of those cases where it looks like they deployed every available resource for this huge, few-mile radius blanket search. Instead, they conducted more targeted searches for Relisha. I'm assuming that this is because there were so many areas that she could have possibly been in. Was she near the Days Inn or the Holiday Inn Express? Was she near Tatum's home or maybe near the shelter? 
although this wasn't one of those large blanket area searches for Relisha, they do utilize a great deal of resources looking for her. The FBI is called in, and rewards are offered for both Relisha's return and Tatum's arrest. They also utilize a string of billboards spanning from Georgia to Maryland, showing Relisha and Tatum's pictures. A search of Tatum's home is also conducted. Ultimately, they seize $87, children's clothing and shoes, a cup, mail, a checkbook, several cell phones, two passports, and a photo of Relisha. Eventually, the search becomes very focused on Canaleworth Park and Aquatic Gardens. By March 27th, DCPD Chief Kathy Lanier says that she is hopeful that they will find Relisha, but admits that it's most likely a recovery mission at this point. I have to stress that this park is huge, spanning about 700 acres, and there are several heavily wooded areas. On top of that, there are a lot of bodies of water that all lead to the Anacostia River. This river is about eight and a half miles long, and it goes through Maryland and DC. This river also runs along many other parks. But they search the park all day, with about 100 officers, firefighters, and cadets. They also empty all the garbage bins into a large truck to search the contents. Unfortunately, they do not find Relisha. But four days later, they would find something in that park that would change Relisha's case forever. On March 31st, the body of Khalil Tatum was discovered in a shed at the park. He died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Police would later confirm that the gun that was used was the same gun that was used to kill Andrea Tatum. Andrea's case was closed, but Relisha remained missing. By this time, Relisha's case was all over DC. People were outraged. How does an eight-year-old girl slip through so many cracks? People were blaming her family, the school, child and family services, and they were blaming the shelter. Let's go back to that shelter for a moment. We know that the DC General Shelter was run by this nonprofit organization that was under contract with the city to care for these residents for $13 million a year. We know this. We also know that Khalil Tatum was breaking a supposedly very strict rule of not fraternizing with the residents. So how did he get away with it? Well, it appears that a lot of rules were broken at the shelter, even beyond the disgusting living conditions and fraternization. According to the Washington Post, a clause in the contract between the city and TCP required anyone they hired or contracted to go through a standard background check and drug test. They were also legally obligated to decline all applicants with a felony record. Somehow, that didn't happen with Khalil Tatum. We know that he spent over a decade in prison for felony charges and that he was released just three years before Relisha went missing. Next, TCP was also responsible for ensuring that nightly headcounts of the residents were being conducted. Well, it looks like that wasn't really happening either. Staff would actually just go to each door and ask how many adults and how many children were inside without physically seeing or hearing anyone. Had TCP enforced these legally required safety measures... Relisha Rudd might still be here today. Khalil Tatum would not have been hired, and they would have realized that Relisha was not at the shelter for 18 entire days while the rest of her family was. 
On April 8, 2014, D.C. Mayor Vincent Gray orders an investigation into the city's response to Relisha going missing. A report would later be published in August. This report is 12 pages long and basically says, well, the government did everything it could for Relisha, and nothing could have prevented what happened to her. But the report also states that there was no recent assessment on file of how the family was functioning in the shelter. It also suggests 26 policy changes to prevent something like this from happening again. Changes include things like how schools deal with unexcused absences, background checks for shelter employees, and relations between families and shelter staff. In my research, I found a ton of quotes from a variety of officials about this report. One department head said that the D.C. shelter was probably one of the best run in the country. School officials defend themselves saying that they intervened as they were legally required to, and that their hands were tied because Shamika was presenting all of these doctor's notes that looked legitimate. But others state that it was an absolute government failure. In my opinion, Jamila Larson, the head of the Homeless Children's Playtime Project, put it best, stating, quote, Given that so many agencies had eyes on this child and her family, as well as the breadth of the report's recommendations, it is difficult to accept that this type of tragedy could not have been prevented. End quote. Something that absolutely breaks my heart for Relisha is that pretty much no one takes responsibility for what happened to her. Kind of like no one took responsibility for her in general while she was still here. It's easy to push this off to Relisha's family, and I'm not saying they aren't to blame. This is one of the few instances where I will put blame on the family. I will never understand the actions of Relisha's parents. But this family was under the care and supervision of the state. This shelter had a responsibility to Relisha. They were being paid to make sure Relisha was okay. Child and Family Services had a responsibility to Relisha. Everyone failed her. Despite this report concluding that absolutely nothing could have been done to prevent this, it also states that the mayor would be submitting a plan to shut down the D.C. General Shelter and convert it to several smaller shelters. After this, it does appear that the shelter began to tighten things up a bit. Background checks were better enforced, and headcounts of the residents were actually performed. Child and Family Services also put all of Relisha's siblings into foster care, which as of last month, so May 2021, they remain. Not long after this report was published, a city council meeting was held to further investigate TCP's practices. In this meeting, Sue Marshall, who is the executive director of TCP, reiterated that TCP has a strict policy against employees and residents fraternizing. She stated that she'd received zero complaints on this subject, but Sue Marshall quickly recanted this statement. City Council member Jim Graham asked, quote, One wonders how effective this policy is. Is it your testimony that you have not received any complaints regarding flirtatious, inappropriate behavior between staff and residents? And Sue Marshall responds, quote, That's absolutely my testimony, and I'm mindful that I'm under oath. At this point, David Burns, the director of the Department of Human Services, interjects and says, quote, I want to make sure that, well, there have been instances in the past, end quote. It's only at this point that Sue Marshall finally breaks down and admits that since 2010, TCP has fired at least four staff members for breaking this policy. 
However, she refused to go into specifics, she refused to speak with reporters after this meeting, and refused to comment if Relisha was ever reported missing during the legally required daily headcounts. According to CharityNavigator.org, Sue Marshall now makes about $300,000 a year as the executive director of TCP. Just throwing that out there. In 2016, the Relisha Red Law was proposed. This would basically make it illegal for a parent to not report their child missing. However, it was never passed. In 2017, the D.C. police deemed July 11th National Relisha Rudd Day, and March 1st would later become Relisha Rudd Awareness Day. The same year, 2017, Shamika, Melissa, and Antonio all go on the Steve Wilco Show. If you aren't familiar with the Steve Wilco Show, it's a spinoff of the Jerry Springer Show where Steve was a security guard. There are a lot of crazy, sensational things that happen on this show. There's a ton of clips on YouTube if you want to check it out, but I feel it's important to remind you that the majority of shows like this are heavily scripted. But in the show, Melissa and Antonio are given polygraph tests while Shamika refuses. All three continue to blame each other for what happened to Relisha. And again, no one takes responsibility. Like I said, I don't think we can really know what's real and what's not on these type of shows. But Shamika said something that I found to be extremely interesting. She states that she doesn't believe that Khalil Tatum killed himself because he was allegedly shot in the head twice. I wasn't able to find his autopsy report to definitely confirm or deny this, but it's something I felt was worth mentioning. Over the years, there were more searches for Relisha. Authorities received tips about construction sites, about parks, and they even searched these old tunnels underneath the shelter. Unfortunately, none of these searches led to Relisha. On October 30th, 2018, the D.C. General Shelter was closed permanently. However, the multiple other shelters that were supposed to replace it have not yet opened. In 2019, it was proposed that the building could be used to house unaccompanied migrant children in the city to which Mayor Muriel E. Bowser stated, quote, We know when facilities are too big to support children, okay? And I don't need to remind you that we don't know where Relisha Rudd is. And her parent was with her. End quote. In my personal opinion, this quote shows exactly how disconnected and unaware the people in power are of Relisha's story. Before and after Relisha, there were children being abused and outright kidnapped in these shelters. On February 6, 2020, 11-month-old Mackenzie Anderson was beaten to death while at a hotel the city was using as a homeless shelter. The sad truth is, when these shelters don't follow these very critical policies, they become rampant with abuse, illegal activity, and sex trafficking, which is a very likely explanation for what was happening to Relisha. Yes, I truly believe that her parents could have fully protected her, that they should have fully protected her. Again, I'm not absolving them from any responsibility. But as long as these government agencies and nonprofits that exist and are paid to protect people like Relisha take zero responsibility, I see nothing preventing this from happening again. In May of 2021, Shamika and Antonio went back on the Steve Wilco show. They both blamed each other for what happened to Relisha, but Antonio insisted that the detectives had new leads and were getting closer to arresting Shamika. Again, it's the Steve Wilco show, we don't know, but at least her name is getting out there. 
Unfortunately, this is where Relisha's case sits today. The man who could most likely tell us what happened to Relisha is dead, and no one is taking responsibility for her being in his care. I know it kind of feels like this case is solved, and I know I almost never do this with giving my opinion, but I have to say I fully believe Khalil Tatum is very likely to blame for Relisha being gone. I simply cannot ignore all of the circumstances and especially the purchase of the trash bags, lime, and a shovel. But with almost no one being there for Relisha, I feel like I need to hold out some hope that she could still be out there, possibly being trafficked. We know that young, impoverished African-American girls are trafficked at higher rates than most. So again, although it feels solved because of Khalil Tatum's actions, until Relisha is found, she is still in need of justice. Which brings me right to our call to action. Please take a moment to share Relisha's picture. Although this case was extensively covered by local media, our true crime community hasn't really picked it up yet. So please, let's do what we do best and try to help this poor girl that was failed by so many people that were supposed to care for her. Relisha Rudd is an African-American female. She has black hair and brown eyes. When she went missing, she was eight years old, was four foot tall, and weighed about 80 pounds. She was possibly wearing a purple Helly Hansen winter jacket dark-colored pants, and pink boots when she went missing. Relisha would be 15 years old today. If you have any information about Relisha, please call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. 